morning. If you would turn with me, as Antonio said, we're in Genesis 37, picking up where we left off uh, before our series through 1 Timothy. So we're in Genesis 37. And you can remain sitting as this is a long passage. So here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph, Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it, told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers were to pasture their flocks, uh, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for parts of your word which deal with the difficulties of your providence, where we see that difficult things happen to those whom you have chosen. So may by your word you comfort us, comfort us that you understand where we are at in the life that we experience, and comfort us with the knowledge that you are sovereign. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite stories is Les Miserables. And the French translation of that title is The Miserable Ones. It's a beautiful story that gives glimpses of redemption. But for much of the story, it, it sucks the reader in to the grittiness and evil of the world where Evil and wrong often triumph. And in this story, there's a character named Fontaine. A series of evil circumstances leads her down a path of desperation, and we ultimately find her on her deathbed, having been exploited and abused. And in the musical musical adaption of Les Miserables, it is during this time of desperation that Fontaine sings, I dreamed a dream. She sings, I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I prayed that God would be forgiving. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder as they tear your hope apart and they turn your dreams to shame. Well, by the end of our passage today, We also wonder, have the evil plans of man put to shame the dreams that God had given to Joseph? By the end of the passage, instead of exaltation, the passage finishes with Joseph sold by his brothers uh, into slavery in a distant land in Egypt, separated from his father in an exile from the promised land. Like Joseph, 
God has given us promises. God tells us he is sovereign. God promises that he loves you. God promises that you are redeemed and forgiven. And if you trust in Jesus, these promises are yours. And these promises don't come to us in dreams. They come to us through the revelation we have received through Jesus Christ, found in God's word. But the reality we experience, it so often doesn't seem to match the promises that God has given us. Rather than demonstrating that we are loved and forgiven, our life often appears more like a curse. Rather than sin and death death being defeated, we are sinned against and we fall into sin daily and we experience the heartache of death. So what is God doing? Where is God when evil wins the day? When everything, including our own sin nature, seems to be going against his plan, seems to be taking the victory. Like a dream, God's promises do not seem to match our experience. And it can be tempting in such times to think that our trust in God will be turned to shame. But the Bible does not shy away from the hard providence of God. We see in this story that uh, we can trust in God's providence. We see that God actually accomplishes his promises through the sufferings and evils that oppose his plan and his people. So do not lose hope. This passage tells us to hold on to what God has revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, our passage begins in a new phase of the story of the covenant family. In chapter 25, God brought Jacob and his family back to the promised land. At Bethel, Jacob built an altar, if we remember, to God, memorializing Uh, the fact that God had met with him there and as a reminder that God would one day dwell with his people in the land of Canaan forever or dwell with his people forever and bring them to the land of Canaan. Uh, But now the narrative shifts. Uh, The final section of Genesis is about the generations of Jacob as we see at the beginning there and that is the family of Jacob. And although Jacob features as an important character in this narrative, the focus begins to shift to his sons, especially Joseph and Judah. Through the story of Joseph, we get an explanation of how the people of Israel end up in Egypt and how God uh, brings about circumstances to unify the family. We also see the rise of Judah, who will become uh, prominent and take a place of preeminence among the brothers, taking the role of firstborn. Well, now our passage begins with the family settled in the land of Canaan. And Jacob's sons have continued uh, the shepherding business. And at 17 years old, uh, Joseph is old enough to be a productive member of Jacob and Sons Sheeping Incorporated. And immediately, we see there's tension among the brothers. Uh, This tension doesn't come out of the blue, for uh, we saw dark clouds on the horizon uh, building back in chapter 35, if we remember. Uh, There, Reuben committed incest with his father's wife, uh, Bilhah, uh, possibly to assert himself uh, as heir to his father's inheritance and to assert dominance uh, as the firstborn over his brothers. And then that chapter concluded with a list of brothers arranged uh, not by age, but by mother, hinting that there's a sibling rivalry brewing. Well, now in our passage, uh, verse 2 introduces introduces Joseph as working among the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Remember again that Bilhah and Zilpah were 
uh, the concubines given to Jacob by his wives, Rachel and Leah, in order to give him children on their behalf. And so by uh, putting Joseph in contrast to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, we again see this tension. Jacob's sin uh, in taking multiple wives is bearing, uh, continuing to bear bad fruit. Well, the storm clouds uh, continue to brew in verse 2 when Joseph brings a bad report to his brothers uh, to Jacob. We aren't given any details about this report Uh, Perhaps uh, the sons were mismanaging the business or acting unprofessionally. Uh, But we don't uh, know Joseph's motivation either. Uh, Why did he come to his father with this report? Uh, Did he come as a tattletale, wanting to make himself look uh, look good and his brothers look bad? Or did he come in sincerity? Well, the text doesn't say. At the moment, Joseph is a neutral character, Uh, Regardless, though, his brothers can't be happy that little brother turned us in uh, to daddy, went over our head to our father. And to make matters worse, Jacob shows blatant favoritism to Joseph. You'd think he would have learned by now uh, about favoritism. You'd think he would have learned from how his parents treated him and his twin brother Esau. Uh, They're showing favoritism between the, the brothers bore strife and led Jacob into all the difficulty of his life. But no, verse 3 says, Joseph, or Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, for he was the son of his old age. And Joseph was also the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Now to show his love, Jacob, Jacob made Joseph an extravagant coat. And uh, we don't actually know if it was many colored. Uh, The word uh, can mean many colored. It's translated as that, but it can also mean uh, intricately embroidered or can even describe the length of the coat. Uh, But regardless of the the exact meaning, uh, this was an extraordinarily valuable gift. If if this were today, the tag might read uh, Gucci or Versace on the back of that coat. But just imagine how you'd feel if uh, one of your parents uh, gave one of your siblings uh, an extravagant gift out of the blue uh, with no second thought to you. Uh, Like uh, children uh, gather around as a token of my affection for Johnny here, I am gifting him a BMW. That's all. Children, you're all dismissed. Well, Jacob is not very subtle here. And not only does this gift reveal his uh, disgusting level of favoritism, it also hints of Jacob's desire for Joseph to ultimately receive the firstborn's inheritance. And obviously, the brothers are not stoked about this. We see in the book of James that favoritism has no place in the household of God. And why is this? Because James says that God has promised that we are, we're all heirs of the kingdom. God chose us, though we were spiritually bankrupt. Therefore, favoritism belittles the truth of God's promises. And it fails to appreciate the massive wealth of the inheritance that we have received from God, that is ours in heaven. And neither is envy appropriate amongst God's people. How can we be envious of what another person owns, uh, be envious of one another, when we have an incomprehensible inheritance that moth and rust cannot destroy? 
So Jacob's partiality is no excuse for the brother's envy. Seeing the gift of the coat and recognizing that their father obviously prefers Joseph over themselves, verse 4 says, the brothers hated Joseph. They were unable even to pretend to speak peaceably with him. Proverbs 27.4 says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Anger and wrath may dissipate, but envy lingers, it gnaws, it hates, it consumes and rots. And so the jealousy consumes the brothers. And then one day, while they're on break, uh, venting about their little brother around the water cooler, uh, Jason, Joseph uh, walks up and says, Hey, bros, guess what? I had a dream, and you were in it. In my dream, we were all gathering sheaves in the field, and my sheaf arose, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, normally, dreams don't mean much, unless you're a psychologist. And in the ancient world, people weren't stupid. Uh, They didn't just accept any dream as having uh, meaning for the day. But something about this dream was different. We don't know exactly what, but something about this dream bore uh, the divine power of God. And its message is not subtle. Joseph will have authority over his brothers. And his brothers are outraged. How dare you think that you would rule over us? And the text says they hated him even more. Well, if that wasn't enough, it says, Joseph dreamed another dream. The second dream authenticates the first. In the Joseph, uh, account of Joseph, the dreams come in pair. They authenticate one another and show, uh, tell us that these are from God and bear divine, uh, divine authority. Now, the imagery of celestial objects, sun, moon, and stars, Uh, They emphasize the heights to which Joseph will ascend over his family. This is such an offensive idea that when he shares his dream, uh, even his father rebukes him. In verse 10, he says, "Uh, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Even Jacob is indignant. How could the entire family be subservient to Joseph? second youngest of all the sons. And uh, again, we don't get details about Joseph's motivation for sharing his dream. Was he haughty, flaunting this new knowledge of his? Was he humble? The text is ambiguous about his character. And this is meant to leave us wondering, uh, are these dreams uh, really from God? Will they be proved true? Or will Joseph be vindicated? Or will he be shown to be a fraud? Well, the text doesn't tell us at this moment, but either way, the second dream feeds the brother's jealousy. It grows. And likely, part of that is because they recognize God's hand in the dreams. They recognize that this dream bears authority, and they are jealous. And Jacob seems to see God's hand in this, for in verse 11, it says, he kept Joseph's dreams in mind. He stored them away for when, perhaps, one day they might come true. Like Joseph, we also hold on to God's promises, even when we do not see them yet fulfilled. We still wait for Jesus to return. We still wait uh, to enter into the new creation. We still wait to be made perfect, and we still wait to hear God declare us righteous. 
we have trusted in Christ. And for the believer, the final judgment will be our vindication. That will be the day when God says, you are righteous. But until that day, we walk by faith and we hold on to the gospel. Even when we face scoffers, even when we fall into sin, even when everything in the world screams, God's redemption has failed. Still, we trust in God's faithfulness. Well, at some point, uh, the rest of the brothers are tending the flocks, and Jacob sends Joseph to check on them. Well, both Jacob and Joseph seem to be a, a bit naive to the brothers' hatred. They don't anticipate the danger that Joseph could be walking into. But Joseph goes, and after passing through Shechem and uh, being directed by the man he finds, uh, Joseph uh, locates the brothers in Dothan. Well, it seems that Joseph's trendy tunic stood out a mile away because his brothers spotted him from a distance. And just the sight of him awakened a taste for blood. Being in the middle of nowhere, several days' journey from home, they recognized an opportunity. And sarcastically, they call him the dream master. The master of dreams is coming. We can see him from afar. And this is ironic to call him the dream master because the dreams came not from him, but from God. And as the Jews would do countless time in future generations to the prophets and ultimately with Jesus, the brothers rejected the agent of revelation. Not liking the message, they decided they would kill the messenger. If we kill the dreamer, the dreams cannot come true. But at this point, Reuben steps in and tries to take charge as the oldest. Don't have his blood on his hands, he says. Rather, throw him into a pit. Now, Reuben's intention was to save Joseph, but the brothers refuse his call to mercy. Instead, they merely see his suggestion as a way to limit their liability for Joseph's life. See, if he starves to death in the pit, can we really be said to be responsible for killing him? So, with that in mind, uh, Joseph arrives and the brothers strip him of his coat, strip him of the symbol of his father's love and protection, and they throw him into the pit without water to starve. And while he's in the pit, uh, and later we find out uh, that he'd been pleading with them to let him go, but they ignore him, and instead of showing any remorse, they sit down and eat together. They have a meal of celebration, enjoying their victory and their triumph over their younger brother. That is, until an opportunity arises. They see uh, a caravan of Ishmaelites, uh, traders on the horizon, and Judah becomes a businessman. What if we sold our brother and made a profit? Besides, if we left him in the pit to die, uh, technically we would still have his blood on his head, hands. So let's kill uh, two birds with one stone, wipe our hands clean of our brother's death, and make some money. So on top of jealousy, greed take hold, takes hold of the brothers. And the brothers follow Judah's leadership, and they sell Joseph. Now in this passage, we see uh, Judah's growing leadership is contrasted and to Reuben's. And especially now, we note the absence of Reuben, who is strangely away. For whatever reason, we do not know. Now, as the firstborn, Reuben should have been the one calling the shots. 
But he wasn't able to persuade his brothers earlier to show mercy. And, um, and when he returns to the scene, we find he finds Jacob gone and he tears his garments in a sign of grief and desperation. He has failed in his responsibility as the older brother to protect his younger brother. So to cover their crime, the brothers dip Joseph's torn coat uh, in uh, goat's blood. And they presented to their father saying uh, that your son must have been killed by a wild animal. And he accepts it. He says, yes, this must have been how it is. And so heartless are the brothers that they watch their father who believes that his son is dead. They watch their father tear his robes. They watch their father enter a prolonged state of mourning, unable to be comforted, wishing only to join his son in death. What a picture of their hardness of heart. But at the very end of the chapter, shifting back from the, the tragedy in the family, we, we see and get an update on where Joseph is. Verse 36 tells us, Joseph was sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, the location of Joseph's slavery is significant because Joseph's brothers not only sold him into slavery, they forced him into exile outside of the promised land, seemingly cutting him off from the promises of God. Later in the history of Israel, uh, to be cut off from the land was equivalent to being cut off from the people. And that meant being under God's judgment. Effectively, the brothers were cursing Joseph. So we wonder, what happened to the revelation that God had given to Joseph? God's plan seems to have been derailed by the brothers, their hatred and their jealousy. Instead of receiving God's promise, Joseph, Joseph seems to have received God's curse. And isn't that how life can be and seem to us many times? We experience life so often as chaos and random events. And sometimes these random events can cause us unspeakable grief. How can we trust God when bad things happen? How can we trust God knowing that he ordains for evil things to happen? How can we be confident in God's promises when people are successful with their evil plans? Well, spoilers, as we'll see at the end of Joseph's story, he eventually is reunited with his brothers and actually becomes an instrument for saving the lives of his family and for countless people. And in his reunion with his brothers, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But these words of Joseph were spoken 20 years after he was sold into slavery. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks, those 20 years of, of suffering and wondering what will become of God's promises. But while he got an answer, often we don't get an answer to the reasons why we suffer, why our life sometimes feels cursed. And it can be tempting for us to seek special insight into our situation uh, by speculating about God's reasons for why he allows certain things in our life. It can be tempting to say things like, God must have planned this bad thing to happen to me 
for such and such a reason. But the Bible says it is dangerous um, and inappropriate to guess at what God is doing when we don't have clear revelation about what he is doing. Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to God, but the real revealed things belong to us forever. And God usually does not reveal to us the specific reasons why he ordains the things he does. Instead, he calls us to trust him. And we can trust him with confidence. We can even trust him with more confidence than Joseph and the patriarchs had. Because unlike the revelation that Joseph received, we do not seek our hope in dreams. And unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who looked ahead to Christ, we have the full revelation of God in Christ, and we can access it through his word. And now that uh, Christ has come, we have no more need for dreams. For Daniel prophesied that when the Messiah came, prophecy and visions would cease, because now we have all we need in Christ and in his word. And it is in Christ that we see the, the beauty of God's hard providence. For although Jesus was innocent, demonic forces, demonic forces and evil rulers assembled to put him to death on the cross. And in the darkest hour, as he hung there on the cross, it seemed as if God's plan had failed. Onlookers saw him on the cross and saw it as proof that he had been totally rejected by God. But through this greatest triumph of evil, God accomplished complete victory over sin and death. It was through the cross that Jesus bore the curse of sin for you, so that you would never experience God's curse. Jesus accepted rejection from God so that you could experience acceptance from God. And then Jesus was vindicated. In the resurrection, God declared Christ righteous. God declared that his work was finished. God declared that his work was effective. And when you trust in Jesus, God applies that accomplishment to you. And all of the benefits that Christ has purchased become yours. Your citizenship is now in heaven, and you will one day be made perfect. These are the promises that you have access to in Christ, and these are the promises that have been revealed to us through him and through his word. And yes, we still await the day when we will be perfected. We still await the day when evil and sin will be gone forever. And yes, in this day, evil and suffering often seem to triumph in our life when we experience unspeakable heartache, when nothing makes sense, and when everything seems out of control, when we fall into sin and experience its consequences. But in these times, as we see in this story of Joseph, as we see throughout scripture, we must look to the cross. Know that God is not against you. Just as God's redemption was accomplished through Christ's death, so God is accomplishing his plan for your good, even through the difficulties of this life. So like Joseph, hold on to the truth that God has revealed to you. Hold fast to the gospel, and you can be assured that your hope will never be put to shame. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. 
for your wisdom, uh, your manifold wisdom, which is foolishness to the world. Thank you for your sovereignty, even when things seem out of your control. Thank you that you have brought victory out of defeat. Lord, may you give us a confidence in your sovereign hand. Give us confidence in the work that you have done through Christ. Even when we experience defeat, even when we experience uh, a world that seems foolish and random, may we trust in you looking to the cross, knowing that you will bring us home, you will restore all things, that you will make us perfect, and that we can be fully confident because we have Christ and we have trusted in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.